0: Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, to Luke chapter 4. You'll find your place beginning in verse 14. While you're finding your place, I'll say a few words of instruction. Sometimes it is the preacher's privilege to proclaim a glad message, and after he has done, if he has done it well, he's received with gratitude. Sometimes a preacher proclaims a dull message, it's his fault. And he's received with blank stares. Sometimes a preacher has the duty to proclaim a hard message. And he's received with sideways glances. And sometimes a preacher proclaims a message that nearly gets him thrown off a cliff. Usually when a preacher steps into the pulpit, he knows which it will be. Nevertheless, he can never really be sure. For the response of the audience depends not only on the ability of the speaker but also on the hearts of the hearers. And in the passage before us this morning, this is actually what happened. As Jesus preached his first recorded sermon in Luke's gospel, the people who heard him tried to throw him off a cliff. And as we think about his message and we think about their response, Luke challenges us with a simple question. How will we respond to this message? which we received from the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you found your place in Luke's gospel, would you follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 14, and I'll read to verse 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, We hear this message proclaimed so many years ago by your Son. We pray that you would grant in us hearts to believe and to receive your word. Hearts to believe and receive your Son. May we be granted the faith the people of Nazareth lacked. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I rush into the content of my sermon, I want to address the children since we don't have Children's Church for you this morning, before I lose your attention, I want to give you a snapshot, a summary. Very simply put, God gave Jesus a mission. God gave Jesus a mission. And the mission that He gave Him was found from the Bible, from the book of Isaiah. And that mission was a mission to proclaim something and to do something God sent Jesus to preach a message of forgiveness for sin and of salvation. And He also sent Him to accomplish that message. And that's what I want you boys and girls to understand this morning from the Word of God before us. You should not think that because of your parents, because your parents brought you here, that that is what makes you a Christian. But rather... You need to actually look to Jesus on your own, and you need to receive the message that he preached, and you need to receive him yourself. Those are the things I want to leave with you boys and girls as you work through your worksheet. Well, now let's all together look at this text then, and I want to set its context a little bit. The context is set for us in these short verses in verse 14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. You see, the context in which Luke sets this is one where Jesus' star is rising. Jesus is gaining some fame. Now, Luke has brought this narrative forward in his gospel to present it at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry But as we can see from these two short verses, there's been some ministry going on already. Jesus returned from the wilderness. A report about Jesus went out to all the countryside. And Jesus went week by week, every Sabbath day, into their synagogues. And he was teaching. And Luke adds a few details to these three actions. That Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. He wants us to know that Jesus... As he was empowered by the Spirit, through his temptation, as we read last week, he continues in the power of the Spirit. Everything he does is done because the Spirit of God is working in him, what he says and what he does. And Luke would have us understand that as Jesus goes about teaching, the people are receiving his instruction gladly. Now, we know from the other accounts that there are also healings, and that helps us to understand why there's so much buzz around town about Jesus. But Luke doesn't present this in the context of Jesus' mighty works. He presents it in the context of his mighty words. And indeed, the people were attracted to him, not just because of what he did, but also because of the things he said. As we see in many places in the gospels, because he spoke to them with authority, not like the scribes, He was a teacher of a different sort. He spoke as one who spoke for God himself as a prophet. And so his fame is growing, and the report goes out. And it's in that context that Jesus returns to his hometown, to Nazareth. Now, Luke draws our attention to Nazareth with those words where he had been brought up. And those words are a kind of reminder. They remind us to go back to chapter 2 and to think about those things about which we read there in chapter 2. We remember in verse 39 and 40, and then in verse 51 and 52, that Luke gave us these reminders of Jesus' childhood, of His upbringing in Nazareth, and how He was filled with grace, and He was filled with wisdom, and He grew in favor before God and men. And now He comes back to the place where He was brought up, where He grew in favor both before God and men, as, an, as a man, as an adult, And we see that Jesus is a faithful Jew, and so as a faithful Jew, every single Sabbath, it was his custom to go into the synagogue to worship with his people, to read the scriptures, to pray, to sing psalms, to gather with God's people. This is how he spent his Sabbath days. And so this is no different. The only difference is he's come to do it in his hometown. But Luke is just setting the table here. He's setting the context for us. He wants to draw our attention, however, to the words of Isaiah, which he quotes, which, which Jesus reads from here in the synagogue setting. And he does this with the repetition of certain words. Look with me at verse 17. Actually, in the very final words of verse 16 into 17. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And then look at verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. These words, repeated in reverse order, work like arrows pointing to the middle to say, look at what he read. It's what Luke wants us to focus on. And he does it in this interesting literary way by repeating these words about standing up to read and then sitting down, about unrolling a scroll and then rolling it back up, about being given that scroll and about giving it back, you see? And so we should direct our attention as well to what he reads, words that come from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. With these words, Jesus outlines his mission as the Son of God. He describes what he was sent to do. Now, when we read these words at first blush, if we were there in that Nazareth setting, we might think... Well, he's just reading some good words, some interesting words about a prophet who is to come. But Jesus leaves us with no doubt. As all the people look at him, their eyes are fixed on him, and he sits down. That is, he takes the position of a teacher in that context, whereby a teacher would address the people from a seated position, and their eyes are fixed on him. And Luke only records one line from his message, one line with which he wants to read, uh, leave us. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is making an astounding claim in that moment. These words from Isaiah, they are about me. That is what he's saying. And let's look then more closely at what Jesus is saying. These words declare about him. First, we see that Jesus is sent by and empowered by God. We've already seen this to this point in Luke. We saw that he was, the, the Spirit came and rested upon him at his baptism in Luke chapter 3. Already we saw the Spirit working in his life. The Spirit caused Mary to conceive, and the Spirit caused him to grow in wisdom and grace before God and men. And the Spirit empowered him and, and led him into the wilderness, and enabled him, as he was tempted by the devil, to resist every temptation. And here again, then, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And all of this is in fulfillment of what God had said by the prophet Isaiah, that when the Christ should come, he would be one who was uniquely endowed with the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him and so it is here, as in many texts in Isaiah, from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus declares. And He says that God has anointed me. He has anointed me with the Holy Spirit, and He has sent me. He has a mission from God, a mission for which the Lord has empowered Him. We also see that He has a mission to preach. Jesus was sent To preach good news. We read that he was anointed and he was sent to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Three times he reads, he was sent and he was anointed to proclaim something. He was anointed to proclaim a gospel, the gospel. That is what good news is. And that gospel is one of freedom that gospel is one of the Lord's favor that is of grace of God's gracious love poured out upon his people Jesus was sent to preach this message but he was also sent to accomplish the things that he was preaching you see what he says there right in the middle of this text He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He's not just one who is sent to proclaim it. He's sent to do it, to set them at liberty, to free those who are oppressed in various ways. And we see that Jesus was sent to preach and accomplish this for specific kinds of people. He lists them. In this way, the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. We'll come back to this idea and think about who these people are. What category of person is Jesus describing from the words of the prophet Isaiah? But we also need to reflect on what Isaiah says. For that, I ask you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61 or... You're more comfortable. You can listen as I read it. But let me read from Isaiah 61 in the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, He goes on from there. What's noteworthy about Jesus' reading of Isaiah 61 is that He stops in the middle of verse 2. He stops short of the day of vengeance of our God. How are we to understand this? Let me suggest to you that we're to understand it by understanding the already not yet character of our salvation. What I mean is that When Jesus came at His first coming, He came to save us, to really bring in God's saving work. But He did not come yet to accomplish everything that will be accomplished. When the prophets looked ahead to the things that Christ would do, it was as if they were looking at a mountain range from afar. All of the mountains looked like they were together. And it's only as you come to the first mountain that you can realize that some of the mountains are yet in the distant future. And by stopping his reading short, what Jesus is saying is, I am not yet sent to accomplish the vengeance of God. That is, I have not now come for judgment. I have come now for salvation. So he stops short of reading those words which his readers would have expected him perhaps, to read, or his hearers, that is, those who were familiar with this text. Let me illustrate this idea. It is a bit like our own presidential elections. Every four years in November, our nation goes to the ballot box, and we elect a president. But that person does not come into office until January of that same year. And in the intermediate time, there is actually an overlap of governments, On the one hand, the president-elect is already busy forming his government, identifying those people whom he will put forward as his cabinet ministers. On the other hand, the current president, who we call a lame duck because he has a short time in office remaining, still has a cabinet, still has secretaries who will accomplish or try to accomplish his objectives. And yet, because he is a lame duck, he's not going to accomplish anything. He's just going to oversee things for a short while. Other nations are going to start looking to the president-elect, asking him, what kind of things are you going to do? What kind of changes are we going to see in January? And they already begin to act as if his presidency is really come into office. It's similar to that, except that Jesus really has brought in a kingdom. He is not just the king-elect. He is sent as Lord and Christ. He is sent as king. And yet there's an overlap of kingdoms, that kingdom that we saw last week, that we heard from Satan's mouth, when he said to Jesus, all of these kingdoms have been handed over to me. And his reign is coming to an end. And yet there is an overlap. There's a period of time where those two kingdoms are both operating. We are challenged to declare our allegiance to the King who will endure forever. And in that space between, we see that some things have come to fulfillment and some things are yet to be seen. And this is one of those things that is yet to be brought to fulfillment, the day of vengeance of our Lord. So Jesus stops short because He does not want to declare that that today is fulfilled in your hearing. There are some other things that we might note about his reading of Isaiah. Most notably, that instead of the words, to heal the brokenhearted, he says, he speaks about letting the oppressed go free. And these words are drawn actually from Isaiah 58.6. It's a weird thing to us, but it wasn't so weird in Jesus' own day. In order to draw connections between two texts, oftentimes a person might incorporate, might mingle two texts together in this way. This may suggest why people are impressed a little bit with the way he speaks. He speaks as someone who knows his way around the scriptures. And so he draws in language from Isaiah 58 verse 6 and incorporates it here in Isaiah 66 verse 1 and 2. There the larger passage in its context reads like this, I have not chosen such a fast, says the Lord. He's rebuking, Isaiah's rebuking the people of Israel for their commitment to fasting and religious ritual, but the fact that they have not actually repented and had the heart change that they need. And he says, I have not chosen such a fast, says the Lord. Rather, loose every bond of injustice, undo the knots of contracts made by force, let the oppressed go free, and tear up every unjust note. I read that from a translation of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because that's likely what Luke is drawing from here. To let the oppressed go free, in that context, in that passage, there is the implication of a command. There is the implication, in other words, by bringing this into Isaiah 66, that Jesus is calling his people to respond in an appropriate way. That they too are to act in accordance with God's saving work of declaring freedom to those who are oppressed by learning to do what John the Baptist called them to do, to turn from their wicked ways and to repent of those things by loving their neighbors as themselves. So that seems to be what Jesus is saying as he outlines his own mission. He's calling people to respond in a way that is appropriate. Now let me say a word, About these categories of people, as I promised. This was a comprehensive message of salvation. It's not just a message for those who are economically poor, and it's not just a message for those who are physically blind. It's a message for those who are spiritually poor, and a message for those who are spiritually blind. But it's not just a spiritual message. It is indeed a message that is comprehensive. It's about salvation and release for everyone from every effect that is caused by sin in this world. But it's one that demands faith for those things to be received, as we will see. How can I say that Isaiah and Luke... And Jesus, in quoting Isaiah, is not just speaking about those who are economically poor and those who are physically blind. The answer is by considering the context of Isaiah and the way in which he speaks about the blind generally and the way in which he speaks about poverty generally. With respect to poverty, very often he does focus on those who are physically poor, who are economically poor, that is, and lacking. But there, their poverty in Israel is by and large caused by their rebellion against God. It is a judgment upon them because they turn from the living God to worship idols. And very often, Isaiah, when he speaks about the poor, he speaks about the way that their rulers oppress them. He uses vivid imagery to say that they they grind the face of the poor as if they're walking on them and grinding their faces in the dust. This is the kind of oppression under which The poor in Israel lived during Isaiah's day. When he speaks about those who are blind, however, he uses that language in a yet more figurative way. He speaks about those who are blind to the truth that God reveals. There in Isaiah 6.10, when Isaiah was called as a prophet to preach, he asked how long, and God said, until... You make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Here, as in many other places, Isaiah uses the language of blindness to describe a spiritual blindness that is blind to the realities of God's work, that is blind to the grace of God, that is blind to the word that God proclaims through His anointed prophets. And so it is with Luke. So it is with Christ. To be sure, Christ in His ministry will really give sight to the blind. He will really proclaim good news to those who are poor. He will really free people who are bound. But more fundamental than this is He will proclaim good news to those who are spiritually poor. For we will see people like tax collectors who were not economically poor, but they were poor in spirit because they recognized that spiritually speaking, they were bankrupt before a holy and righteous God. And they came to the one, the only one who had good news for these poor men. And so, too, he proclaims good news to us many of us who may be really poor in this life, but all of us who are poor. In that we do not have within ourselves that which we need to accomplish our salvation. We bring nothing to the table before a holy and righteous God. And Jesus comes to us as He came to the people of Nazareth, proclaiming good news to us, proclaiming freedom to us, proclaiming release from bondage and from captivity. And He came and comes to accomplish those things in our lives. Ultimately, we will see that this salvation does bring an end to real blindness, physical blindness, that is. And it does bring an end to real poverty. But that's, by and large, part of the not-yet-character of our salvation. For a day will come when God will send His Son again. He will bring an end to all suffering and all tears and all oppression, and all wickedness, and all poverty for His people, for those who trust Him. But Jesus comes here in Nazareth 2,000 years ago, proclaiming that that today, already, this scripture is being fulfilled in your midst. And the reason is because Jesus is the one who fulfills it. That was His mission come and proclaim, and to come and accomplish. But the people don't receive it. The people don't, or they're not quite sure. They scratch their heads and they raise their eyebrows, and they say, these are indeed gracious words. Indeed, they marvel at these words. But they say, is not this Joseph's son? Now in Luke, he frequently calls attention to Jesus' relationship to his adoptive father, when he wants to draw our attention to the things that people think wrongly about Jesus, not just about his relationship to Joseph, but in every way in which people think they know who he is but fail to see him for who he is. We saw that in the genealogy. We saw that in Luke 2, 40 through 52, when Jesus was in the temple, and his mother said, your father and I have been searching for you. She did not understand when he said, I had to be in my father's house. And we'll see this again. We see it here. The people say, is not this Joseph's son? They think he's just the son of a carpenter. He's just an ordinary guy from Nazareth. Who does he think he is? Saying these amazing words, claiming that he's the one who brings the fulfillment the words of the prophet Isaiah. Now if Jesus said, Ended there and said nothing more. He might have just become an example to the rest of the men of Nazareth of what not to do on Sabbath in synagogue. Don't do what Jesus did last week and claim more than you should be claiming. Just read the text and say some nice things about it. But Jesus did not stop there. For again, we remember in Luke chapter 2 what Simeon prophesied when he held the baby in his hand. There in Luke 2, 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And here, Jesus is fulfilling this word as he will again and again by revealing the hearts, the thoughts of the hearts of the people of Nazareth. And so he confronts them with this proverb. Two, in fact, he says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus explains this proverb with that second line. When the people say, Physician, heal yourself, they're saying, we've heard the reports of what you've been doing and what you've been saying, the things that you've done in Capernaum. Luke has not yet told us about all of these healings, but they've heard in Nazareth. They say, do a little bit of that here. There's probably two ideas present here in their minds. On the one hand, they feel like you're a son of Nazareth. This is your hometown. If, they're, if you're doing mighty works, if you're doing good things for them, you better be doing it for us. We should have the inside track. We deserve this. We know you, and you know us. You owe it to us, as if they could make demands upon him like this. And the other idea may be a kind of prove-it mentality. Okay, you, you talk a big game there, Jesus of Nazareth. You say that you're the one who fills this. Let's see it, seems to be what they're saying. Let's see it. Heal yourself, physician. Now Jesus says, you will quote to me this proverb, which would have been in currency at that time in Israel. But he really is exposing what they're thinking. And we can see that in Mark. We can see that in Matthew in their accounts of this passage where he, they highlight the unbelief of the people and the way that they question Jesus and the way they doubt who he is. But Jesus has a proverb for them. This is the proverb that you have for me? Well, here's a proverb for you in verse 24. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. No prophet is is acceptable in his hometown. Now, at first blush, we can see and apply this in our own context as well. When we think that someone forgets where they came from, they're getting a bit too big for their britches, you might say, in our own context. But Jesus is going to give weight to this proverb with two examples from the Scriptures. Two examples from the book of Kings. In the lives of the prophet Elijah and the life of the prophet Elisha. We don't need to turn there. The people of Nazareth would have been very familiar with these passages. Jesus gives them in broad outline. But I want you to see how they parallel one another. Because it helps us to see what he's saying. I'll give it to you up front. Jesus highlights the common need in Israel at the time of these prophets. He highlights the fact that no blessing was given to those in need in Israel. And he highlights that the blessing was given to individuals who were Gentiles. So let me read in verse 25, and then I'll go back and forth between what we find there in 25 and 26 and Verse 27. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel. And in verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel. Here, Jesus points out, in Israel, in the time, there there were many people who had needs. There were widows and there were lepers. And what time was it? In Elijah's days, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, where God, by judgment, caused it not to rain on the earth for three and a half years. And a great famine came over all the land. And the time of the prophet Elijah as well. And then in verse 26, and Elijah was sent to none of them. And in verse 27, and none of them were cleansed. And then to whom was he sent? But only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And in Elisha's case, but only Naaman the Syrian was cleansed. And so you see what Jesus is doing. He's saying, in Israel at the time, there was a common need. You can find that passage, for instance, about the lepers, about the cleansing of Naaman in 1 Kings 5. You only need to turn two chapters over in 1 Kings 7 to see a narrative about four lepers. They weren't cleansed. You can find the passages about Elijah in 1 Kings 17 and 18 and in the surrounding context there. And there... You can bet there were widows in Israel, and you can bet that they were hungering and seeking food. But Elijah wasn't sent to any of them, but to a widow in the land of Sidon. And why? Why? Because time and time again in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, the people of Israel rejected the prophets of the Lord. They, Israel, was their hometown, their father's land, quite literally. And yet, we see even in a particular scenario where Ahab's son wants a word from the Lord. Not from the Lord, but he wants a word from a prophet, some prophet, who will tell him that whether or not he'll recover from an illness he has. And they've already, under Elijah, eradicated all the prophets of Baal from the land. And so he takes his messengers and sends them far away to the land of the Philistines. Go there. You'll find a prophet of Baal there. Get a word from them. And Elijah confronts them. Is it because there's no prophet in Israel? that you have to go so far away? What is Jesus saying here to the people of Nazareth? You're just like your fathers. You're just like they were. They had need. God offered provision. God spoke by the prophets, and what did they do? They said, no thanks. We'd rather have the prophets of gods who are not gods, of gods who we make with our hands, with wood and with clay and with stones. Give us those prophets. That's what the people of Israel said in the days of Elijah and Elisha and the days of Isaiah. That's what they're saying in the presence of the Son of God here in Nazareth. They don't respond as they ought to have, They don't respond with repentance, but with outrage. When they heard these things all in the synagogue, every single one of them was filled with wrath. These people with whom Jesus had grown up are filled with wrath against him. And they rise up, and they drive him out to the town, they bring him to the edge of a cliff, and they want to throw him off. They want to kill him. This son of Nazareth who would say such things as this, but it was not yet his time, and so he simply passed through their midst. And he did bring judgment, for he went away. They rejected the one who proclaimed the good news, and the one one prophet of all the prophets, the only prophet who was able to actually accomplish the good news he proclaimed. And he went away from them, because they would not believe Luke never says that they did not believe. It is his habit, rather, to paint the picture. To show us how amazing unbelief is. That it would drive people so offended by this gospel to try and kill the Son of God. They did not respond with godly grief and repentance. They filled up the measure of their sin with a response of wrath. Just as in the days of Elijah, Jesus passed through their midst and went away. How about us? How will we receive this message? How will we receive the messenger? Well, first, we must all recognize our own poverty before the Lord. We all stand in need of one who pronounces good news and one who is able to accomplish it. People of Nazareth would not receive this message because they thought they deserved some kind of inside track. They thought in categories of honor and shame to which we are not accustomed, and in their mind Jesus was exalting himself a little bit too much and somehow was taking honor away from them. He didn't deserve all that he was claiming. They deserved a little more than he was offering them, they in their minds. He was offering them everything. Everything that is good but they felt like what they really deserved was an inside track apart from that. What about us? Do we see our need? How can we test whether we do? Let me suggest this way. The good news of salvation, the gospel that proclaims that you are a sinner, that you are a sinner before a holy God and there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. The gospel that says you are so thoroughly wicked That God who made you would have nothing to do with you apart from the saving righteousness that comes by faith in the one who makes us righteous. Do you receive that and say, that's good news? Or do you receive that and say, who do you think you are? Talk about me like that. I know that I'm a sinner, but not quite like that. In the days of John Wesley, the children watched this in a cartoon of theirs. He went about preaching this gospel of grace, and the people in the established church responded, saying, "Who do you think you are to say that we are sinners? We who go to the church every Sunday. Who do you think you are to suggest that we are in dire need of the grace of the Lord?" And so it is as it was then, it is now. To our world, the gospel is an offense. Our world hates that message. They don't want anyone to say that there is really a thing called sin and we really are slaves to it and we really do need release from that and we can't release ourselves. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can't accomplish it for ourselves. But there is one who can do it. His name is Jesus Christ. and He has done it. Is that good news to you? I pray that it will be today and forevermore. For it is the only message by which we are saved. We first, however, must recognize our poverty. We bring nothing that can commend us before a holy God. As Isaiah says elsewhere in Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, Who inhabits eternity whose name is holy i dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite the god who inhabits eternity who dwells on high also makes his home with those who humble themselves in repentance before him those who have a contrite heart and a contrite spirit he dwells with them, not to leave them with the, where they are, but to revive them, to give them life, to lift them up by His great grace. We must humble ourselves, though, in faith before this holy God. Now, some of us must hear this message in a specific light. You see, another reason the people of Nazareth could not receive this message was because they could not quite accept that Jesus, the son of Joseph, could do all of this. And we suffer from the same ailment, though for different reasons. Some of us, for whatever reason, have developed this idea that though we are saved by grace, we must somehow keep ourselves in fellowship with God by our own work. And you know what? We fail every single day. And when we fail... We afflict ourselves, we oppress ourselves with burdens we cannot bear, with a burden of guilt, thinking perhaps if I just nurture this feeling of guilt a little longer, then I can atone for this later sin that I've committed. And we go throughout our days in misery and guilt because we think somehow we must make ourselves acceptable to God, the God who saved us by His grace. The God who saved us by His grace, sustains us by His grace. We are like that character in that great story by John Bunyan. In that allegory of the Christian life, this man whose name is Christian, who is a pilgrim, who begins the story walking around carrying an enormous burden on his back and everywhere he goes, he is weighed down by this burden. He cannot carry it. He carries this guilt around and he cannot seem to figure out what to do with it. Until he comes to the cross in that narrative and he sees that empty cross and he believes and the burden rolls away never to be carried again in the life of that man. So it is in the life of the Christian. We are those who sing in the words of Isaac Watts at the cross at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. Now I am happy all the day. Dear Christian, brother and sisters in Christ, are you happy all the day? Or are you miserable because you weigh yourself down with feelings of guilt? Because you're not quite sure that the release that Jesus proclaimed goes beyond your initial faith. You're not quite sure that the grace that he proclaimed and that he accomplished is sufficient for all your life, and so you weigh yourself down. Do not weigh yourself down like this. Cast your burdens upon the one who is able to carry them. Again, his name is Jesus. And now, one more way in which I want you to hear these words, to hear this message which Jesus proclaimed. Some of us must hear... This is about more than forgiveness. It is indeed about freedom. It's about freedom to captivity to sin. Freedom from captivity to sin. To be sure, no one of us will fully and finally be free from sin until we die or until Christ returns. This evening, if you're able to come back, we will meditate on that reality as we look at 1 John chapter 3. But let me meditate on it a little bit as a way of introduction to that sermon now. You see, we often struggle with besetting sins, sins of a besetting kind which afflict us, sins with which we struggle day in and day out, addictions of one sort or another. And we may be led to think we can never we can never be free of this thing that is so besetting in our life. We can never be free of this burden. It's just something we'll have to deal with for all our days. And here I want to say to you, the Christ who freed you from the guilt of your sin is also able to free you from those sins which cling so closely. We need to understand the way in which He does this. It's the same way in which He lived his life perfectly in every way in the power of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul says this about the Spirit in our lives. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We are all a finite vessel and we are filled with two desires warring in our midst and these desires are like oil and water. The desires of the Spirit and the desires of the flesh and they are against each other. But as Paul goes on in Galatians 5, he's going to elaborate and list the fruit of the Spirit. They are the fruits that the Spirit produces in our life and as He produces these godly desires, love, love, and joy, and peace, and so on. It necessarily expels from us things like hatred, and enmity, and rivalry. And this too is a gracious work of God that Christ works through us by giving us the Spirit to free us from the things that weigh us down. He is able to do it. And of course, as we see in our lives, and as we see from Scripture, it is His will... To do it by degrees in our life but it is his will to do it to slowly transform us according to his purposes by degrees into the image of Christ And he does it by the Spirit working in us through the means he has given us the word prayer and fellowship so I simply want to say this to you though you struggle with sin as we all do Do not give up in the fight, for it doesn't depend upon your ability. You may say, I can never in my strength be free from this sin, and you are right, but you don't have to do it in your own strength. So don't despair, but keep on fighting. Keep on trusting. For we have one who is more than a mighty preacher. He is a strong deliverer. Only let us believe. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you, O oh Lord, are gracious and good. You are good beyond all measure. And you have shown your grace and your love to us in this. You sent your Son, who gave his life, who died on the cross, to finally and fully accomplish our forgiveness from sin to finally and fully atone for all our sins, to finally and fully give us freedom from the debt that we owe to You. We thank You and we praise You. And we pray, O Lord, that You would enable us now and forevermore to live this life by faith, trusting in Him as we go. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.